Well, as you're finding your seats, we can go ahead and turn in a Bible together this morning to Luke chapter 20. It's also printed for you there in the bulletin on page 6. But we are continuing our journey together through Luke's gospel, as you know, and we find ourselves here drawing towards the tail end. So picking up where we left off last week, and again, looking at chapter 20, begin reading in verse 45, and then we will read into chapter 21 for a few verses. So again, Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. As you know, we try to do our best here to observe the traditional liturgical calendar throughout the Christian year, and we highlight respective Sundays and seasons of that calendar. But as you know, we also have a secular and worldwide liturgical calendar as well, and today is one of the high holidays, is it not? It is Super Bowl Sunday. I'm sure you, sure you knew that. And though the pulpit is not the place to give political endorsements, certainly, or even sport team endorsements, you know I do that from time to time. The latter, that is. I give, I give sport team endorsements. You might be wondering uh, this morning, well, who will I be rooting for in the Super Bowl? I'm wondering who you are. And I have to say, I will be rooting for the San Francisco 49ers over the Chiefs. Kansas City Chiefs, and this pains me a little bit as I tend not to root for California or New York teams, sorry, okay, um, but perhaps like you, I'm just a little bit oversaturated with Kansas City Chiefs coverage, you know, namely Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift and the blossoming relationship they apparently have, or if you notice every commercial, has Patrick Mahomes or Travis Kelsey on it. There's just a bit too much, too much, if, 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 you know, if I have to say so, okay? Uh, I don't really care who wins, but I'll be pulling maybe for the Niners a little bit more. But it's that last thing, too. You know, the Travis Kelsey, he's a tight end for Kansas City, if you're unfamiliar. Uh, and the Taylor Swift, you know, mega pop star relationship. Uh, it makes you wonder, though, at times, as you observe it, if the romance is really born from true love and true spark and true relationship, or if it's just for show, right? If it's just for the limelight, is it just for greater attention or appearances or what have you? Well, keep that in your mind for a minute. 
Because whether you realize it or not, there's something actually similar at work here in the passage that we just read. As you know, Jesus continues to trek in Luke's gospel deeper into the city of Jerusalem. This is, of course, after that triumphal entry where he is greeted with fanfare and hosanna and palm branches, but before, of course, what will culminate at the cross. And as he continues, again, to trek deeper into the holy city, deeper into Jerusalem itself, he continues, as we've seen, to collide with the religious leaders and religious establishment of his day. And he continues to contrast, if you will, their impressions of his ministry, their misunderstanding of God's purposes, and he contrasts that with the truth and reality of the kingdom that he has come to establish through the gospel. And really, he's been doing this in his entire ministry. So it, it kind of you know, dials up a bit following the triumphal entry. But as you know, in Luke's gospel, even before that, this contrast has been occurring over and over again. We saw it previously as he contrasted the Pharisee and the tax collector at prayer. We saw it with the persistent widow versus the religious leaders or the rich young ruler in contrast to helpless children and childlike faith or the rich man and Lazarus. We've seen these contrasts already time and time again throughout Luke's gospel. And again, he has been colliding and contrasting parabolically. But he's also been doing the same physically. And we saw it a few passages ago when he cleansed the temple. When this contrast again between the merchants who had sort of monetized worship and made it this cottage industry, and he contrasts that with the reality that his father's house is a house of prayer and a prayer for all nations. So he does so as well physically, and he continues here to do so in these chapters. Again, this contrast, this colliding, he does so rhetorically as he speaks several times with the leaders of his day. And we've seen these past few weeks how they are coming to him with basically every attempt to either undermine him religiously or theologically if possible, but if not that, then certainly politically. So, of course, they bring before him the denarius and the coin, and they want to trap him with some kind of, you know, uh, something that indicts him, you know, in the eyes of the government. Something that's anti-Caesar that can get him in hot water. They question his authority. And then last week, with the Sadducees in particular, if you remember, they brought this riddle regarding the resurrection in, 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 to, in, in front of Jesus to try to, again, trip him up. This sort of theological, hypothetical, remember the one where the guy is married but has no children and six of his brothers marry the same woman and they still have no children? Well, Jesus, you know. Riddle, riddle me this, Batman, right? Jesus, in the afterlife, in this heaven that you speak of, you can hear him laughing and snickering, right? Jesus, which of them will be her husband? Again, there's this riddle, this theological hypothetical meant to kind of trip him up. They want to, they want to present him as a clown before the people, a jester who knows not, knows not what he's talking about. They want to undermine him. Well, here today, as chapter 20 ends and spills over into chapter 21, the contrast here that Jesus highlights and presents and that Luke highlights by the way that he records it 
is again, this contrast between a segment of the religious leadership in Christ's day, namely the scribes, who are like theological attorneys, if you will. They are experts in the law of Moses and how to articulate it and to argue the finer points. That's on one side, and to contrast them with, if you notice, a poor widow. He wants to contrast yet again a somebody, the capital S, and a nobody. The scribes and a poor widow. And if you notice here the contrast, to go back to our Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift silly example, so thank you for your indulgence of my, my sports-saturated mind, okay? But to, to go back to that example, that reference, the contrast here is between religion, as represented by the scribes, and relationship, as depicted by the poor widow. Between things done for show, and don't get me wrong, I really have no idea of the Kelsey-Swift relationship. They might be happily married one day, and, and God bless them, okay? So, for illustrative purposes. But it's to contrast again, things done for show, things done on the surface, and then things of true substance. And so it's a contrast here, yet again, which forces Christ's audience, which includes us today, to ask themselves, to ask ourselves, is our relationship with God in name only? Is it for show? Is it for appearances? Or is our relationship with God born of true union with him and sacrificial response to his love. Think about, again, our call to confession. Seeking our minds on the things above, setting our minds on the things above, seeking those things because we have died. Is our relationship, again, in response to what Christ has done, sacrificially, or is it just merely for show or for pretense or for, for box checking? Because again, here, if you recall, Christ's original hearers would have thought of the religious leaders in their day as something akin to celebrity. Something akin to celebrity. The temple was the center of religious and civic life for a Hebrew. And so by nature then, those who were of the professional or vocational religious class, and we've seen several of them here, Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, they were on a pedestal of some kind. They had prestige. They had position. And often, as it still even happens today, those roles or those pedestals, which should be used to point away from oneself and to point to something greater, namely God, who stands behind all those things, too often, and we see it here, those roles or those pedestals are instead used to highlight oneself. Used for personal gain, used for accolades or avarice that's unbecoming of those positions. And so something akin to celebrity status kind of evolves. And it happened even back then. Celebrity status, a cult of personality, just like it can today. Just like churches, if they're not careful, still perpetuate those things today. Or think in our world, just like if we're not careful, you know, big box evangelicalism can be enamored with these things today even and create personalities and, 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 and 
you know, celebrities out of pastors and, and, and things like that, usually, not always, usually though to the detriment of the church's witness if we're not careful. But again, if we understand this, this helps us then grasp a bit better the force of contrast that Luke has in his recollection of this account. You have the scribe with his long and flowing robe. This would mark him as a man of prominence, a man of leisure. He is white collar, if you will, not blue collar. He is ivory tower, not in the trenches. A day laborer or a shopkeeper or a shepherd could not wear a robe like this. It would be impractical. It would get in the way. The scribe here, we're told, kind of strolls through town. He has that beauty pageant wave, you know, perfected, right? What is it, elbow, wrist, wrist, elbow? As you can tell, I have no idea what I'm talking about, okay? But he has that wave perfected as he strolls through town. He's already done the, you know, He's got the eyebrows looking good, the double guns in the mirror, and he's strolling out to the marketplace. Okay? Maybe he takes an extra lap around the grocery store to make sure everybody has had the chance to greet him. Okay? The scribe, we're told, you know, in his standing and position, loves that VIP table at the private restaurants, the finest restaurants. He loves the seat of honor, all of these things. And yet again, the scribe would be the one to whom everybody looks. And maybe they look in jealousy. Maybe they look in disdain. Maybe there is some eye rolling at the preening. But the reason this is a good example by Jesus is because more often than not, more often than not, people in that day would have looked at the scribe and their supposed relationship with God and assumed that relationship was the pinnacle. The scribe is the example we should emulate. He has the flowing robe and the degrees and the position and the pedigree and the connections and all of these things so that original hearers will look at a scribe and think that relationship that he has with God is the pinnacle. It's the apex. They would love a shot at the flowing robes and the beauty pageant wave if they only had the chance. Similar, similar to, again, how we can look at Travis Kelsey and, and Taylor Swift and think, man, that's the pinnacle of romantic relationship. doesn't get any better than that. The chiseled jaw football player the beautiful music star, the biggest stage, everybody knows their names, it's a Hollywood love story, money, fame, true love. Again, we might roll our eyes like I do at the coverage or the preening, but would we trade places if we could? Wow, what a relationship. Doesn't get any better than that, right? Doesn't get any more iconic than that. To which, if you notice, Luke, as he writes, and Jesus, as he teaches, pauses and replies, or is it? Is it? Is the scribe and his show the pinnacle? And you see here, Jesus, in true fashion, then gives the contrast. And his way of contrast, if you notice, is to make his audience turn their heads. From the front, 
from the stage, from the limelight and VIP box seats, from the place where the scribes are making their long and verbose prayers and perhaps giving a large offering with people scratching their heads at where they got all of that to great fanfare. And instead, he says, take a look towards the back. Take a look towards the back, to the nosebleed section, to the place without fanfare, to a woman who you can barely see. Someone who, if you don't look carefully enough, you might, you might miss. To a poor widow who has likely been forgotten because to be widowed in that society is to be just that. It's why Paul talks so much in his pastoral letters of caring for widows. It's why Jewish law legislated for them in the Torah. It's a society in that day that is not kind to widows, and so constant reminder is necessary. In fact, if you notice, the scribes themselves are not even above taking gain from them or financial advantage of them. You saw that there in verse 47. But Jesus, again, puts his hand on our shoulder and he says, turn from the front to the back. Squint your eyes if you have to, but you can see her. She's making her way up from the back, but she has to be careful because she might get knocked over. But here she comes. She's not deterred. She's hard to see. She's so nondescript. But find her. Find her in the crowd. Don't lose sight of her. And when that widow patiently arrives at the offering box, if you noticed, her giving is as unremarkable as her persona. What was it? We're told it was two small copper coins, which your Bible might have a footnote already there for you, and it reminds you that the coins that are being referred to here are less than one one-hundredth of a denarius, which we looked at a few passages ago. A denarius was that, that wage for a day's work. This is less than a hundredth of that. Her giving here is as unremarkable, really, as her persona. But Jesus says, in contrast to the scribe, and Jesus says to the shock of his religious, celebrity-obsessed audience, that widow has given more than all of them. He, he points to her, who you would miss if you didn't look carefully enough in the crowd, and he says, that's the relationship that God, his Father, seeks with his children. And now do you see the shock that this is? That Jesus has elevated a poor nobody over and above the scribes. He has contrasted their relationship and chosen the widow in her giving sacrificially as the one to whom they should emulate. And if you again bear with my analogies, this would be akin to the NFL tonight. If you watch the Super Bowl, this would be akin to the NFL tonight. Instead of zooming over to the Kelsey skybox and if Taylor Swift is there, showing her over and over again and reminding you of the headlines about them and tracing the history of their social media arc and getting together. And again, this would be akin to instead of the NFL doing that, 
They instead had a live feed up into the nosebleed section, or better yet, a live feed into the house of a middle-class nuclear family in middle America. And the camera was fixed on a couple, husband and wife, married 40 years, no fame, no fanfare, but still holding hands, still on the same team, still as in love as the day they met, perhaps even more so. And the NFL kind of panning in on that relationship and saying to you through a public service announcement, that's the good life. That's the good life. That's the relationship that we want to celebrate, that we want to highlight. You see, why does Jesus highlight the widow and not the scribe? And why, if we had any cultural sense at all, we'd make celebrities of regular faithful couples and be perplexed by our obsession with flash-in-the-pan TV romance? Because only one is for real and one is for show. One is religion, if you will, and one is relationship. And Jesus makes it clear all throughout his ministry over and over again that God isn't looking for religion. Religion says, do this and live, but we can never do enough. Religion says that we must perform for God in order to be accepted. Religion is concerned only with the outside and not the inward disposition of the heart, but God, we're told, God, his father, is looking for relationship. And the gospel, which makes that relationship possible, has announced, live because it's finished. Live because I've done it all. You are accepted because of Christ's performance and not your own. And what was the performance that Christ offered? What was the countercultural, counterintuitive throne that he was lifted up upon? It was his sacrifice on the cross for you, for your sin, and for mine. And the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that God came for this relationship and did not come for religion. And he makes it abundantly clear how that door was opened to relationship as he speaks of Christ coming down, as he speaks of it in Philippians, hear this, Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. Notice the encouragement that we draw from the gospel. The comfort and participation we now enjoy because of such a gospel is that which is based in the knowledge of Christ's sacrifice. That unlike the religious leaders of his day who exploited their position at times and who exploited their prominence, we're told by Paul that one, namely Jesus, came from a far, far greater position, namely the throne room of heaven. And he didn't exploit, but he emptied himself. He did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but everything was from sacrifice and consideration of his beloved. We're told that he, though he's in the very form of God, didn't clutch it like the scribes clutched those flowing robes, but Jesus took the form of a servant and he humbled himself. And because of that, we're told that God the Father glorified him and gave him the name above all names. And what we see here with this poor widow in our story is that she is representative of the one who grasps that reality of our Savior, who grasps that reality of God. And in grasping that reality about God, namely, again, a reality of sacrifice and humility, she offers back to God in kind the very same thing. And that is evidence of her true relationship, her true love and knowing of her God. And the same is true for us today. The same glory can be ours today, not of our own doing, but again, the glory of being known by God and being given a new name, Christian, child, son, or daughter, and giving of ourselves in service and devotion and worship because he first gave to us. Holding nothing back in service or sacrifice to his kingdom because we're told that Christ held nothing back from us. Loving generously, giving sacrificially, again, because he first loved and gave to us sacrificially, now and forevermore. That is our hope. That is our call. That is the relationship that we are blessed to enjoy because of what God the Father has so graciously done through the Son. May the Spirit empower us to respond in kind. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this convicting text which helps us examine our hearts and examine the basis of where we put our trust, the reason behind what we do and why we do it. Father, would we see ourselves in both characters of this story, really? Would we see our tendency to be the scribe at times, trusting in our own position or ability or prominence or reputation? And would we repent of such? And Father, would you help us then to see ourselves represented by that widow who, when aware of our need, when aware of our lack of position, really, 
we come to you humbly with all that we have. But in coming to you with all that we have, find that we are home already. Find that we are known fully by you, loved fully by you, welcomed in our emptiness and need, because Christ is our all in all. And so, Father, again, we thank you for what you have done, and we pray your continued blessing upon us. Would you help us, we ask, to leave here not just having heard your word, but as James encourages us to also then live from your word, to do your word in a way that is obedient to Christ, and again, is not merit for our salvation, but is in response to what has already been given to us, by grace alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.